to the book of First Timothy. First Timothy is one of three pastoral epistles. They're called the pastoral epistles because they were written to pastors by Paul, namely Pastor Timothy and Pastor Titus. Timothy in Ephesus and Titus in Crete. And they give much um, instruction regarding how the churches of the New Testament age should be governed and run and how they should worship. I thought it fitting that we spend some time in such a book since, and the elders agree with me, so, uh, because we are in the process of hopefully seeing new church officers brought into the church, deacons specifically, um, and uh, those elections will be coming up in the not-too-distant future, as we are training uh, prospective candidates for that now, and this book speaks on the diaconal qualifications, as well as the elder qualifications, and various other topics as well. So we're going to be in First Timothy for a while. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 1, I will be reading through verse 7. This is the word of God, the authoritative word of God. Uh, In faithful translations of the original languages, it remains just that, authoritative. God is speaking herein to you, so listen as he speaks to you now in this portion of his word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, in order that you may command certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction or of our commandment is love from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Amen. Pray with me. O Lord, help us, all of us, as this means of grace um, is experienced uh, by us and as we partake of it, as I preach. Would you grant me, Lord Jesus, unction by your spirit, and would you, through that spirit, through him, would you please speak to us 
as the prophet of the church. And would you please move our hearts through your word and its uh, application to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Move this mic here. All right, children. Let's see. We're all the children. All right, y'all. Eyes up here. Kids, there are some matters, that is, topics or things, in which it is more important to know what is true than in other matters. So I'm going to give you some examples here. So we're some matters in which it's more important to know what exactly is the truth um, than in other times. So, for example, it's not very important that you children, or we adults for that matter, know whether or not there is a man living on the moon or not. Y'all have heard the man on the moon. I, maybe you've heard that expression. People talk about the man on the moon. There's no man on the moon. But whether a person believes that is not really terribly important or not. Okay? It's kind of a silly matter, in other words, not, not a not important matter. However, let me give you an example where knowing what is true and what is not is really important. So let's just say you're in the process of just learning how to swim. Maybe some of you are already able to swim. Maybe some of you are not yet able to swim. Uh, but let's just say you're starting out, or you can remember back on when you were, where you were learning how to swim or beginning to learn how to swim, it's very important if you're just a beginner and just learning in the process of learning that to know whether or not the water that you're about to get into is three feet deep or ten feet deep. It's really important because you could drown if you go into water that's ten feet deep and you really don't know how to really swim yet. So be sure, by the way, to know how deep the water is you're getting into uh, if you do go to swim or learn how to swim. Be sure you know what kind of water you're getting into, how deep it is, because that's really important. It could save your life. That's, that's when the truth really matters in a situation like that. And there are other situations that we could come up with as well. Um, but I won't, I won't belabor that point. But when it comes to spiritual matters... When it comes to what we believe about God, about our place in the universe, and about how we can be forgiven of our sins, and what God requires of us, when it comes to these spiritual matters, children, it is very, very important that you know what is true and what is not, and that you only believe what is true. Whether or not you believe about the man in the moon is, is not important. What you believe about God or about how to be right with God, that is overwhelmingly, big word, means greatly important. And this passage makes that point, among others. So listen as I go through it for that point. Let me just give you some brief background here on 1 Timothy itself. The book, it was written by, as you know, uh, and as the, as it, uh, teaches in the, in the very first verse itself that Paul is the author of this letter. Paul wrote this letter somewhere between, and we can, we can be pretty confident of the dates here, but, um, but not the exact 
date. He wrote it somewhere between 61 AD and 67 AD, somewhere in that range. So in the mid-60s AD is when Paul was writing this, early to mid-60s AD. And he's writing to Timothy. Timothy was a fellow co-worker um, of Paul's. He was a fellow pastor. Uh, he was an evangelist, actually. And Paul is writing to Timothy in this letter to to instruct him concerning his pastoral duties in the city of Ephesus, which was where he was ministering. He was in Ephesus. And Paul writes to give him instructions regarding uh, certain matters. And what prompted this letter's writing, almost certainly, as was the case for so many other of Paul's letters, was false teaching false teachers, to be more specific. And there were false teachers in and around the Ephesus church, trying to influence the believers in Ephesus. Uh, And what they were doing, among other things, was they were using God's law to promote speculative ideas, notions, um, that they themselves had regarding genealogies and also they were using God's law to promote certain fanciful tales, we'll call them, that which they themselves had concocted in their own brains, which Paul scornfully dismisses in verse 4 as myths. This is what these false teachers were doing. They were fascinated with genealogies, and they were um, coming up with extra-biblical uh, things that they declared to be true, which Paul says are myths. Now, these guys, by the way, these false teachers, are not the Judaizers of Galatians that, the, that were in Galatia. They don't appear to have had the same um, emphases or same issues. They, uh, at least Paul is not uh, speaking about the same issues that uh, the false teachers in Galatia or in the Galatian region were peddling. These guys had a different thing that they were fascinated with. And that is to say, again, genealogies and other uh, kind of trying to read between the lines of Scripture uh, to come up with, fill in things that are not actually found in Scripture with their own speculative ideas and uh, uh, guesses, shall we say. Two things happened in these first seven verses, really uh, uh, verses 3 through 7. Verses 1 and 2 are merely introductions. Uh, or merely an introduction to the to the to the letter, but in verses three through seven, two major things happen. First, we see Paul opposing the heterodoxy. I'll explain that word in a moment of false teachers. Paul opposes the heterodoxy of false teachers, but also in these first seven, uh, few verses, Paul commends the orthodoxy of the apostles. He opposes the heterodoxy of the false teachers and he commends the orthodoxy of the apostles. So first of all, the heterodoxy. What is heterodoxy? Uh, It's a deviation from accepted or orthodox standards or beliefs. Hetero means different. Uh, Doxy, teaching. And it's different teaching from what the apostles taught is what it was. That's what heterodoxy is. 
And these false teachers were promoting heterodoxy. In verses 6 and 7 of our text, Paul gives a a description of these uh, men, these uh, wannabe teachers of the Christian church. We read there, For some men straying from these things, I'll mention that, I'll talk about that in just a moment, some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or, or the matters about which they are making confident assertions. So let's break that down uh, a little bit here. First of all, they strayed from these. And what are these? Well, almost certainly he's referring to the concern for a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, which Paul had just spoken of in verse 5. In verse 5 he said, But the goal of our instruction, or our commandment, is love from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And and then he says, For some men straying from these three things, is almost certainly uh, what he has in mind particularly there. Because, again, that's the immediate context. And he's saying, These men have set aside... These noble virtues that I just mentioned, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, they have abandoned them, those virtues, for all intents and purposes. And as a result of having abandoned those virtues that he mentions, that that all believers should be pursuing with earnest, these peddlers of heterodoxy have turned aside, he says, secondly, to fruitless discussion. As a result of abandoning what they should have been focusing on, they begin to pursue fruitless discussions. That is to say, talk that is devoid of valuable content for the believer. And is therefore utterly useless, if not downright harmful. Not only had they strayed from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, and and subsequently engaged in fruitless discussions. But we are also told in verse 7 that they were men who wanted to be teachers of the law. Teachers of the law. Now there's good reason, I'll read that, Um, wanting to be teachers of the law, verse 7, even though they do not understand uh, what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. This law here, there are good reasons, by the way, for, for concluding that Paul is referring here to the law of Moses in particular. Not just uh, any legislation, but the law of Moses as contained in the first five books of the Old Testament. There are a couple of, three reasons actually that I'm going to give. There's some more that uh, I've read of, but uh, three that I want to mention to you just in brief. First, It's probably almost certainly the law of Moses because Paul usually has the Mosaic law in mind when he speaks of law. Not always, but usually, more often than not, the Mosaic law is what he has in mind when he uses the term namas. Secondly, a second reason for concluding that it is the law of Moses that he has in mind is that the ethical considerations mentioned in the immediate context, namely verses 8 through 10 that follow verse 7, the ethical uh, considerations there echo the contents of the Ten Commandments, which we will look at next time we're together in First Timothy, Lord willing, next Sunday. They echo the contents of the Ten Commandments. And of course, the Ten Commandments are found where? They are found in the law books of Exodus and Deuteronomy. And they are a summary of the Mosaic Law's content as a whole. 
And then the third reason why Paul almost certainly has the law of Moses in mind, and these teachers of the law, the law uh, that they were uh, of Jewish uh, background, should we say, and uh, had uh, um, were uh, familiar with the law of Moses, is that Paul speaks of the false teachers as having great interest in myths and genealogies. And most biblical scholars agree that these myths and genealogies were almost certainly Jewish in character. Uh, genealogies uh, probably were the genealogies uh, of the patriarchs that are found in Genesis uh, and elsewhere, but primarily in Genesis. And the myths probably being similar to those biblical speculations, uh, or I should say extra-biblical speculations, that are found in the rabbinic Haggadah, it's called, which is what is recited by Jews at Passover, uh, also in the writings of the first century Jewish philo- uh, philosopher Philo, some of you have heard of him, and similar speculations are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written by the Qumran uh, community uh, uh, in the early intertestamental period and early in the, uh, in the first century as well. And these men were caught up in these uh, speculative uh, speculations regarding genealogies and uh, also the production of myths. Uh, and they... Yet they want to be teachers of the law, of the Mosaic law, even though Paul tells us there that they did not understand what they were talking about concerning the Mosaic law when they spoke on it, and nor did the, the doctrines which they were deriving from their reading of the law and about, uh, about which they were making confident assertions. They didn't, they didn't know what they were talking about when they were spouting doctrine, which they said was from the law. They didn't have a clue. And yet they were confident this is what the law was teaching, or implying, or whatever. These guys were quacks. And Paul, as he is wont to do, is upset. And so he tells his um, understudy, Uh, his uh, protege, Timothy, he says, I order you to silence them. That's what he's doing in verses 3 and 4. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus. Why? In order that you may instruct the word there, well, it says instruct in the New American Standard, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. The Greek word that the New American Standard, as I just read, translates instruct, is really better translated and several other translations do this, as charge, I charge you, or I order you, or even better, well, similarly, I command you. I'm not asking you, I'm not making a suggestion here, Timothy, I'm telling you to do this. I'm an apostle of Christ, do this. That's what's essentially going on there. He's commanding him specifically to silence these purveyors of strange doctrines and telling them, you are, no, you are not allowed to teach those things. You are not to, allowed, to, allowed to say those things uh, in the church of Christ. Why? Why was this a problem? After all, genealogies? Speculation about genealogies? Is 
that really that big a deal? Now, I don't know exactly what the, the details were, but, you know, on, there's a, probably a chance uh, people in Paul's day might have said, it's kind of minor stuff. If it was indeed, again, I don't know. But it kind of sounds like it could have been something that some could have considered minor stuff. Should we call it that? Why does he say, no, they can't teach this. Tell them not to teach this. Precisely because strange doctrines, the word he uses there, um, strange doctrines are actually false doctrines. They're false doctrines. They're not true. They're lies that these men were trying to pass off as truths. So Paul says these fools need to be silenced so as to not lead God's people astray any further than they already had. Shut them up. And apparently, as uh, the evangelist uh, of this church plant in Ephesus, which was now probably a fully uh, fully functioning church, a particularized church as we PCA folks want to, uh, would say, um, apparently they, uh, um, what was the point I was making? I was just making a point. I forgot the point I was making. And it's not in my notes. Anyway, I'll keep going here. So he says, shut them up. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, the Timothy had the authority to do that. He had the divine authority from Paul and from Christ, more importantly, to do that. So he's, he, of course, undoubtedly followed through, and he prevented them from further uh, opening their mouths on the subjects that they were fond of speaking on. What can we learn from Paul's command to Timothy to silence these men? Well, I think it's pretty obvious, isn't it? False teaching must not be tolerated in Christ's church, even if it appears to be of a seemingly harmless nature. The names of the wise men and the fact that there were three, for example. And by the way, you know, there's no biblical evidence that we're three, and we, there's no biblical evidence of the names, and yet uh, there is tradition that uh, in uh, extra-biblical literature that their names were, one of them was Casper, I can't remember the other one, uh, the other two. Nothing in the Bible about that. But it's seemingly kind of silly stuff. But even if it appears to be seemingly harmless... To allow falsehood, even of a seemingly insignificant variety, to exist alongside of and to have the same status in our minds as God's actual truth is, uh, is to do grave damage to the authority of God's truth. When you put falsehood next to truth and call it truth and say it's as true as the Bible is, you have denigrated the authority of the scripture. You all see that. To apply to the authority of Scripture what Jesus applied to unaddressed, openly sinful behavior in the church, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. It's a little bit taken out of context, but you get the point. It sullies Scripture. When you, when you bring something in and say, it's as true as Scripture is, you sully Scripture. 
you besmirch it. And given the fact that this is the case, it cannot false beliefs, even if they appear to be of a minor on a minor subject, cannot be tolerated and must be forcibly silenced. Now I'm not talking about with baseball bats or guns. I'm talking about ecclesiastical force, church authority. That's what elders should be doing. We should be shutting up the likes of Greg Johnson, for example. The jury's still out on that to some degree, although, anyway, I won't go into that. church must silence those who speak falsehood and declare it to be true if it's of a spiritual nature. Secondly, Paul not only opposes the heterodoxy of these false teachers, in this passage he also commends the orthodoxy of the apostles themselves, himself included, of course. Literally, orthodoxy means uh, the correct way. The correct way. The right teaching. In other words, of the apostles um, who are extensions of Jesus' own uh, teaching ministry. Pa- uh, the, the, uh, in verse 5, uh, we see this point where he's commending their, their instruction. He says, but the goal of our instruction is love. And then he says, from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Um, but he's speaking here when he speaks of instruction. It can also be translated commandment, as I, as I mentioned when I first read it. Um, he's saying this instruction, it's a, it's a reference to Christian doctrine. To apostolic doctrine in particular. He refers to it as our instruction. He's referring to himself and, again, the other apostles who share his convictions about, about Christ and about God and about the way of salvation and other matters as well. So by using this term that the New American Standard translates as instruction, Paul is referring to the authoritative teaching of he and the other twelve men whom the Lord himself had chosen to proclaim the truth about about him, about Jesus, to the world. He's speaking about the apostolic um, corpus, if I can call it. Corpus is not the right word. Uh, The apostolic body of truth that uh, was the apostles to, uh, to preserve and to protect, and other pastors as well. The goal of our instruction, he is commending our instruction to Timothy uh, and to the church in Ephesus, and indeed through this letter to the entire New Testament church down through the ages. The goal, the desired outcome, he says, of such orthodox, such correct way, teaching, instruction given to believers in the church, the goal of it is love. It is love. Interesting. The goal of truth is love. Yeah. Love is not defined exactly in the New Testament. But, Paul does describe it. He doesn't define it um, in a neat little sentence, but he does describe it uh, 
in different terms. He describes it in terms of Christ giving himself to the church. He says that the that is the uh, preeminent, he points to that as the preeminent uh, example, exemplar of love. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5.25. Also, in, uh, similarly in Romans 5, uh, 8, that well-known passage, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This was an act of love, Christ dying for us. He is the divine Son, giving himself up. And also the famous, most famous of all verses, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Love is described this way in terms of Christ giving of himself up for his people, but it is also described in terms of, or is, it is described as a, the summary and fulfillment of the law. To love is to keep law. God's law. Romans 13. Verses 8 and 10 makes this point. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. There it is. For you shall, for you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Paul also describes in the most famous passage regarding love what love looks like in terms of the behaviors that it produces over in 1 Corinthians 13 that's read at every Christian wedding that I've ever been to. Some of you perhaps know it by heart. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give, and if I give all my possessions <clears throat> to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. This is what love does. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, it is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, endures all things, hopes, uh, endures all things, hopes all things, endures all things, loves, never fails. Amen. This is the love uh, that is the goal of orthodox teaching of apostolic truth as set forth in the New Testament. This is its goal, that we might love one another in particular, but also, of course, love God. But this is probably more focusing on, uh, uh, at this point, love for um, the brethren, or among the brethren, but also, undoubtedly, with love for God as well, uh, part of this equation. The love that such biblical teaching such uh, true teaching produces in believers will in turn, Paul says in this passage, it will manifest itself in three ways. Now in 1 Corinthians 13, 
listed about a, nearly a dozen ways, I think, at least eight or ten. But there are three more found here in verse 5 that are manifestations of the love that is produced by well-instructed, biblically-instructed people in the church. He says this kind of love, uh, this uh, truth-produced love, will manifest itself in the form of a pure or a clean heart. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, he is not referring to the heart, to a heart possessed by a virtually perfect individual. That's not what he has in mind here by a pure heart or a clean heart. Rather, what he's referring to, he's referring to a heart that has been cleansed by the forgiveness and spiritual cleansing that is experienced by believers in Jesus who quickly and habitually confess whatever sins they commit. It is somebody who keeps short accounts with God, as I uh, heard years ago somebody say, and I like that phrase. It is, it is uh, the, the, the believer who keeps short accounts with God, who when he or she messes up, uh, uh, quickly goes to the Lord and says, Lord, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have spoken like that, uh, or I shouldn't have thought those things, or I've had that attitude, or done this or that. That's uh, what he has in mind here when he speaks of uh, a pure heart. Is this an apt description, more or less, of your heart? Again, we're not talking about perfection here. It's somebody who keeps short accounts with God. Do you keep short accounts with God? When you go throughout your day and you think an inappropriate thought or when something a little um, unkind falls off your lips, do you quickly stop and maybe not get down on your knees and audibly speak it, but do you say, Lord, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me for that. You should, you see. I should. That's what we need to do. That's what allows us to maintain a pure heart. He says this love, this truth-produced love, will also manifest itself in the form of a good conscience. By a good conscience, Paul means here an honest evaluation of myself that has concluded that my conduct has been obedient rather than disobedient at any particular point in time when my conscience talks to me. You see, we need to, and and keeping short accounts with God is how we maintain a good conscience. That we be able to say, yes, Lord, I'm doing the right thing now. I believe I'm I feel as if I'm, feel is the wrong word, but you know my point. Uh, I'm, I've, I've concluded that I'm doing the right thing at this point in time. That's a good conscience. Are you someone who is in possession, most of the time, of a good conscience? That's biblically informed. And then thirdly, this truth-produced love will manifest itself in the form of a sincere faith. Paul is referring here to a heart that genuinely trusts in and is reliant upon God in a way that enables 
this Christian to truly love other believers. Even if those believers are ones he finds a little bit challenging to love. A sincere faith will um, will produce this kind of uh, love. It's produced by love and it produces love toward others. Do you possess this kind of genuine trust, uh, childlike even trust? Not perfectly, not talking about perfection again, but truly. Does it characterize your faith? None of us is, are all these things true of us all the time. None of us always has a pure heart, a good conscience, or even a sincere faith. We all fall short, folks. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why Jesus obeyed where you and I have not, so that we could be seen as being obeying even when we aren't. Flee to Christ. If this is convicting, it is to me. Flee to Christ. You will find ample forgiveness uh, for your failures and ample strength to become better at uh, exhibiting these virtues. How do we apply this last point about the importance of uh, uh, clinging to and promoting the orthodox teaching of the apostles, as Paul has done in this passage. Well, we need to emphasize the. Uh, we need to understand how important correct teaching is. And we need to be sure that we are getting only correct teaching not only in this church, but in our presbytery and in our denomination. And if to the degree that we have any influence outside of our denomination beyond that. Now, it is not just the elders, it is primary, primarily the elders' responsibility, but it is not just our responsibility to make sure that all that is heard from this pulpit or in Sunday school or uh, whatever is orthodox is true. It is, we have primary responsibility for that, yes. But you all have some responsibility in this as well, who are not officers in the church. You need to speak up if you hear something that sounds fishy. You need to come to me or the other elders and say, did you really mean that? And what about this verse here? Does that really, I'm, 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 I'm confused. Does, does that square with what scriptures say here? You need to be willing to do that. Please do it respectfully. But you need to do it. Um, but in order for you to have a hand in main, making sure that right things are being taught in this uh, church or outside of it, uh, in the broader church, you, that requires you to be doctrinally knowledgeable and sound. You are supposed to be a theologian almost as much as I am. 
this, I've learned, I've learned enough. I'm not a baby Christian anymore. That's good enough. That just doesn't cut it, folks. With God, anyway. You are to be diligent to be a student of the Bible, a good student of the Bible, so that you can identify when something is amiss in terms of teaching. And yes, practice as well, but we're not, you know, this is the focus on teaching here. Are you such a person? Are you doctrinally knowledgeable and growing in knowledge? theological understanding, and is your doctrine sound? By the way, a good measure of whether or not your doctrine is sound is our confession and our doctrinal standards and comparing your, your views with those. But we all need to be, we all need to dig into this, folks. You need to dig into this. It's the way, it's one of the foremost ways you show that you love God. And this applies to you children, too, by the way. As you learn how to read, the first book you should be regularly reading is your Bibles. You should be trying to study your Bible with your mommy and your daddy and asking questions, good questions about what does this mean and why is this why is this why did this come and happen like this? And you ought to be starting to memorize Bible verses as well. Yeah. It's important. It's exceedingly important to God and to you for your well-being and the churches. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for truth, O Lord. Your truth, that we have it right here in our Bibles everything that we need for life and godliness. We thank you for that, that you are a speaking God, that you have revealed your mind to us in the pages of Holy Writ. Would you please help us to love your truth as much as you love your truth? Now, we can't do that. We're creatures. Uh, you love it infinitely. But would you help us to love it as, as, as well as any creature can? Um, would you please cause us to dig, to not be satisfied with our current level of understanding, uh, but to dig deeper and to love your word and hunger for time in your word. Please forgive us, Lord, for times in the past, maybe even the very recent past, when we have not been so eager to engage with you, to hear from you. And would you please... Give us grace to go out of this place and be salt and light in this dark world this week. If there's anybody, Lord, that has not trusted you in this in my hearing, uh, trusted you, Lord Jesus, as his or her only hope of being reconciled to God and of uh, entering heaven when he leaves this world, would you please cause um, the unbelieving heart to be replaced by a believing heart? Would you grant salvation to any lost souls that are listening to me now, uh, causing them to flee to Jesus alone? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.
The Lord's Supper, like the ordinance of baptism, was instituted by our Savior, the Lord Jesus, uh, prior to his ascension into heaven. Uh, record of the that institution is found in several places, one of which is Luke 22, where we read, starting in verse 19, And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he also... In the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Lord's Supper, uh, we are told by Paul in 1 Corinthians, is to be observed as a memorial of him uh, and his work rendered, his atoning work rendered on our behalf. Not just his death, but uh, also uh, his life and his resurrection and ascension as well, all of which are a part of that atoning work that accomplishes our salvation. The Lord's Supper is, we believe it to be, a sign of the covenant. First and foremost, a sign of the covenant. Uh, Not of inward transformation, although that may be in the person who receives it. It might not be. Uh, but it is, first and foremost, a covenant sign, a sign of the covenant. Not just a sign, but also a seal. By sign, I mean it pictures for us uh, what, has, um, uh, what is accomplished by Christ in the covenant to those uh, who are in covenant with him. Uh, it symbolizes uh, the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior that was, um, on which he paid for the debt that we owed to divine justice. But it is more than just symbolism. It is symbolism, but it is more than that. God is making a statement to us as we partake of it, and that statement is uh, the sealing aspect of it. God is confirming to us uh, his intention to keep all of his promises. Jesus, in particular, is confirming to us his intention to keep all of his promises to us, made in the scriptures. Uh, And it is also a means of grace because of it, the fact that it is a sign and a seal. Is a means that the Holy Spirit can use, uh, and I normally say it's a saving uh, means of saving grace, but the Holy Spirit can use it to, to save somebody. Uh, if the person watches uh, what I'm doing here, or what a minister is doing when he serves the Lord's Supper, and when others partake and can be converted through that, in that sense, the Lord can save somebody through viewing the Lord's Supper. But uh, for God's people is what it is particularly given for, uh, most uh, most particularly given for, that we might grow in grace. That is to say, grow in um, our knowledge of the Lord, our desire and ability to serve the Lord faithfully. Um, And we need grace to do that, God's grace. And this uh, partaking of this meal rightly uh, is the Holy Spirit can use that to impart grace and wishes to use that to impart grace to us. This meal is uh, not for everyone. It is only for those who know themselves to be Christians. Uh, You need to be a baptized uh, and communing member of an evangelical church. Um, You don't have to be a member of this church to partake with us. You're welcome to partake if you're a member of some other evangelical church of which, in which you have, where you have been baptized. Uh, We that is so that we know that. 
somebody has heard your profession of faith and deemed it to be credible and has baptized you um, in, in that church, that communion. Uh, you may join with us if that's the case. Um, you may not come, the Bible says, God says through Paul, you may not come if you are uh, cherishing some sin in your heart. So that would be if you're under discipline, of this or some other church, or you are, uh, and it hasn't gotten to the point where somebody else knows what's going on, but you know what's going on, and you're uh, living in sin. I'm not talking necessarily about sexual sin, although it might be that. But some other sin, you are living in it. You are practicing it. You are not repenting of it. You don't care that God says you may not do that. Uh, you don't care. Uh, you're probably not a Christian. You're probably unconverted if that's the, st- the situation you're in. You certainly have no right to think you're a Christian if that's the case. You need to use this time to reflect on your defiance of God and how wicked that is and uh, uh, your grave spiritual danger that you're in by clinging uh, to that sin rather than repenting of it and trying to walk in obedience. You must uh, not stay away from this if you're wrestling with sin. Uh, if you are struggling with some besetting sins in your life, sin or sins in your life, but you are struggling, you're fighting, you're trying to obey, uh, not always succeeding, but you're trying, uh, please come. This is exactly what you need. You need strength. You need the Holy Spirit to strengthen you in that battle. Uh, this is a means designed to give strength to those who rightly partake of it, that is, who feed upon Christ in their hearts by faith and faith alone. Let's pray and ask the Lord now to bless our partaking of his meal. O Lord, we thank you for means that you have provided, Lord Jesus, to your church by which we might be strengthened in our walk with you, the word preached, uh, and also the visible word of the Lord's Supper and baptism. We ask that you would use these, uh, this meal and our partaking of it to be a blessing to us. Uh, we ask that you would set aside these elements from their common everyday use unto the holy purposes for which we are now about to use them. Would you please bless us as we partake. Give us the grace to trust actively, deliberately, uh, in a renewed way in our Savior and his gospel promises as we partake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. As I ministering in his name, give this bread to you. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please wait until we're all served the bread, and then we will eat together, and likewise with the cup.
The body of Christ was broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, he also took the cup, and having given thanks, as we've already done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Please, again, wait until we're all served. There is, uh, there is grape juice in the very center of each tray, in case you uh, can, in good conscience, partake of the wine, but we would encourage you to partake of the wine, which is around the perimeter. blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for what you did for us, Lord Jesus. Calvary's cross. We thank you for taking that awful load from us. We thank you for obeying your Father in ways that we never 
ways that we can't this side of heaven. That you perfectly obeyed. And that that perfect obedience is what you and the Father and the Spirit see when you look upon us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to go from this place um, better equipped to honor you. Would you please help us to walk in subsequent hours and days in a manner that is worthy of our calling as Christians, of followers of Christ. Would you please give us opportunities to share our faith uh, with unbelievers or believers, but particularly with unbelievers. Would you please help us to grow in faith, grow in love for you, grow in our desire to honor you uh, with obedience. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought it from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.